Welcome. You are listening to a sermon presented at the First Church of Christ in Elkins, West Virginia. This message is given by pastor and teacher Jason Brandon. Jason will be selecting passages from the Word of God and showing us how to apply God's Word in our lives today. He will also be showing us why we need Jesus. How can faith, God, and the Bible have more influence in your daily life? What is God saying to us today? For this and more, stay tuned. This year we're going to go through the basics. Um, and, and some of that's the basics of the Bible, and some of that's uh, the basics of Christianity. And a little bit, I want to also occasionally touch on the basics of the Church of Christ. Um, we are, at, at the First Church of Christ, we are part of a movement called the Restoration Movement. The goal of the Restoration Movement is to restore New Testament Christianity. Um, because, and, 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 and hear me on this, one of the opening statements of the, of, the, uh, of the Restoration Movement, Christian churches and churches of Christ, is that we are not the only Christians, but we are Christians only. Um, now, I want to go to the book of Acts, chapter 11, for this. Acts, chapter 11, verse 19. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them. A great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, He was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. And then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians, first at Antioch. Now, Let me say, nowhere in Scripture do I see denominational names. Methodist, Presbyterian, Baptist. I see Christian. I see the way. That's the other one I see. That one didn't catch on the way that Christians did. Uh, Nowhere do I see a complex hierarchy of district superintendents, um, archbishops, those things. Um, Now, hear me. I'm not saying that names like Methodist or Baptist, or organizational structures are bad. I'm just saying they're not biblical. That's not what I see in the Bible. What I see are Christian churches, and I, that name Christian, Christian churches led by elders, and that's all I see. That's what we, that, and that's what we do here. We are not a, the restoration movement is not a denomination for two reasons. One, the word denomination means the name that you're called, and we're just Christians. We're not called anything. You know, you ask me, what are you? I'm a Christian. Yeah, but what kind? There is no kind. I'm a Christian. That's it. I'm a Christian. Uh, so we have no name other than Christian. You know, we use the restoration movement, but it's not on a sign or anything. We just, it's, it's kind of an in-house phrase that we use to refer to other churches. Like in town, there's First Christian Church where Kent preaches. And we're both part of the restoration movement. It's kind of a catchphrase that we use, but we don't advertise it because that's not a biblical phrase. And biblical things matter. 
And we want to call things, we'll, we'll talk on this one in a future Sunday, we want to call biblical things by biblical names. So even the phrase restoration movement is not a biblical thing, so it's not an important phrase. Um, the other thing that doesn't make us a denomination, denominations do have this hierarchical structure. They do have superintendents and districts and regions and zones, and we don't have that. Um, if you don't like what I'm preaching, you can complain to Kent. It's not going to do any good. <laughs> because we, other, other than that we're friendly and we basically teach the same thing, and I, tr- I trust what Kent is preaching at First Christian Church, that's it. This is an elder-led church. And there's, if you don't like the elders, there's nowhere to report higher because what we, what we see in the New Testament are churches are autonomous. That, that while Peter and Paul and the, and the apostles would go from church to church and encourage them, and because they knew who Jesus was, the churches took them very seriously on what they were teaching, um, we don't see any structure in the New Testament where the apostles passed on some, some kind of of, of extra-biblical authority that was to continue on for, for, for the years. We just see churches being told by Peter and James and Paul and, and the rest, this is what you guys should do and, and take care of it in-house at that point. Um, now, hear me. When I say that we are not the only Christians, we are Christians only, I'm therefore not saying that other people at the other churches in town aren't Christian. But I'm not Christian and Methodist or Christian and Baptist or Christian and President. I'm just Christian. Okay? And I'm not saying that the Methodists or, or any of the others aren't Christian. I'm not, I'm not going to say that. That's not my place. Um, and, and I work with the other churches in town, and I like them, and I, and I have a lot of friends among the other preachers in town, and I appreciate them. But denominations have an unfortunate tendency to fall into human traditions. Um, that just is there. That's just the story of hundreds of years of denominations, people getting together of voting on things that, that if it's not in the Bible, it, it, it doesn't matter. And if it's in the Bible, it shouldn't be up for discussion. And so we are non-denominational. We are Christians. We're not the only Christians. We are Christians only. Um, and we need to be careful not to add another one of our phrases. Uh, uh, we speak where the Bible speaks. We're silent where the Bible is silent. We don't want to add to what the Bible says is the path of God. And I gave the example a week or two ago. Um, I had a friend who wanted to join the Nazarene Church. She was a wonderful lady. Um, I'm still in, in reasonably frequent contact with her son uh, through social media. And he was a kid that was in my, I taught Sunday school in this church. And it was, it was a Nazarene church. Um, and she wanted to join the church. Nazarene rules, you can't join if you smoke. That's not in the Bible, though. The Bible doesn't say you can't be a Christian if you smoke. You can't be a Nazarene if you smoke. And I, my response to that was, well, then I'm, I didn't smoke, but I said I'm glad I'm not Nazarene. Because that's an added rule that's, that's not part of the Bible. And that's what we want to make sure that we're not doing, is adding to what the Lord said. There, there's what the Bible... The Pharisees got in trouble, didn't they? For There's what the, there's what the Old Testament said, and then there, there were additional rules that they added. We want to make sure that we don't do that, and that's a principle of this church. Now... As we work through the basics of what we understand the Bible to say, I want to say that this is probably a good subject to go over. It's good because some people do come from the denominational backgrounds. And again, I don't want to speak, I'm not trying to speak bad about the denominations as much as I am just trying to say, this is why we do things here the way that we do, kind of laid back. Um, Because if it's not in the Bible, it it doesn't matter that much. Um, 
And, and so if you're from a denomination, this church may seem a little weird, a little different, and that's okay. Uh, it's good to go over then some basics. Um, and, and, uh, and honestly, some of us may have been raised in this church our whole life and we still don't get it because nobody bothered to explain why we do certain things and believe certain things. And, and sometimes it almost seems hard to know where to begin. So you guys know I'm a comic book fan. And so in high school, I started reading comic books. And at that point, they'd been around for a few decades already. And jumping in on a comic book, I didn't know who any of these characters were. And they rarely take the time to stop and explain. And I was very lost and very confused until I'd been reading for two or three years before I finally kind of figured out who some of these characters were. Um, Man, I think church can be like that. We just assume everybody knows who Abraham is, who Moses is, who Daniel is, how to put them in the right order. Those were in the right order. Um, But not everybody can. In fact, a survey of Christians was that three out of four Christians can't put Abraham, David, Jesus in the right order. That's also the right order. Um, And so that tells us that, that we just assume that our kids, we just assume that the adults know this. And have this framework and know that Ezra is one of the last books of the Old Testament, and even though it's in the middle. And we just kind of make these assumptions that people know how it all fits together, because if you know it, you just kind of forget that other people did, that there was a time that you didn't, and that other people should know it, and, and they don't. And so we're going to spend some time kind of covering the basics, because maybe they haven't been covered in your life, and that's not your fault. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll get that covered. We'll, we'll do that. Two weeks ago, we, therefore, two weeks ago, we started with what is the Bible? <laughs> because that is absolutely our foundation. The, we believe the Bible is true. Um, inerrant, sufficient, authoritative, infallible, divinely inspired, universal, and unique. That's what I said. I said to you. That's how that spells out. Um, and, and that's important because everything I do from the pulpit needs to be based on this. It is with the assumption that this book is true. Uh, and my arguments come from, the, and, and we have to start somewhere. That's our foundation. That's our, if you're into whole philosophy, that's our Cartesian foundation. I think, therefore, I am. This is true, therefore, we continue. If this book is not true, then what's the point? And then last week we looked at sin. And incidentally, these sermons are on our website. If you missed them, I know it's hard to listen, make time to listen to stuff. Um, and most people in most parts of the country listen to something maybe in the car while they're driving but it's hard to get a signal once you leave Elkins, right? So it's even hard to listen. On the way to Buchanan, I lose signal all the time. But in, it, worth listening to if you haven't heard them. What is the Bible? What is sin? We start with sin before we get to anything else because the Bible is a story. True story, but it's a story, and it's the story of God solving a problem, and the problem is sin. Um, and, and there's no point talking about a Savior if we don't know what we need to be saved from. So we talked about sin last week. And as a story has... Um, introduction, rising action, climax, the high point of the story, falling action, resolution. The Bible has this too. Now, that climax point is different people think, the the knee-jerk reaction is it's the cross, and there's nothing wrong with that answer. Um, Some people might say it's the Garden of Gethsemane. It's right before the cross when he made the decision God, I don't want to do this, but I'll do this if you want me to. Some people would say maybe it's the garden is where that pivotal moment came. Some people might say it's, it's, it's the empty tomb. It's the proof that the cross worked. That's, that's the climax. Um, uh, uh, John Milton, who wrote Paradise Lost, uh, 
said that it was actually the temptation in the wilderness, that that was when Jesus could have abandoned the plan, but instead he chose to embrace God's mission. Whether or not it's, it's the temptations or the garden or the cross or the empty tomb, it's Jesus. Jesus is the climax of the biblical story. He is the answer to the problem of sin. And so today we're going to talk about Jesus. Now you're going to say, Jason, we're kind of skipping God. <laughs> shouldn't, shouldn't we be talking? The whole thing is about God. <laughs> when we talk about the Bible, when we talk about sin and why sin is a problem, we talked about that sin is an offense against God. When we talk about Jesus, we're talking about God. We just have to kind of pick God up along the way. Um, and, and so there's no point in trying to understand Jesus until we get sin, and so we did that last week. Uh, but, but I do want to talk a bit about God and who God is as we get to the point of Jesus. And it, I already fall into this habit where I can get a little bit collegiate already. I'm going to get even a little bit more so here today. Um, this, this, is where, this is where I prove that I got money, money for my degree, right? So I want to talk about who is God. And in college, we were taught that God is a couple of things. And the first thing that we're taught is that God is transcendent. Now, that is one of these fancy words, um, but that means that he is bigger than, in fact, he is outside of the universe. He transcends his universe. He made the world, and he's bigger than the world, and he's so big that nothing can affect him. He's too big for that. Um, If every single human being on earth voted that God should go away, they won't do anything. If the Bible, in fact, the Bible says, if every single person quits believing in God, rocks and trees will praise him. Uh, the, the easier way to say this, I think, than transcendent, is holy. Holy is that he is set. He is apart. He is set apart. That's what the word means to be set apart. He is apart from his world. God is holy. He's bigger than his world, and the world does not affect him. It has no effect on him. First uh, Peter chapter one. First Peter chapter one verse verse fourteen. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. A whole lot of verses on his holiness, but I, I, I like that one. He is set apart from his world. He made it, but it doesn't control him. It doesn't affect him. So consider this. If God were not transcendent, bigger than everything, he would be trivial. Trivial is small. That goes without saying. If God weren't big, he'd be small. If he weren't transcendent, he would be trivial. Of course, as a preacher, I like alliteratives. Transcendent and trivial. If God were not transcendent, he'd be trivial. He'd be meaningless. If he wasn't that big, he wouldn't matter to us. He has to be bigger than everything. But then the other thing that we were taught in college, in addition to being transcendent, he is imminent, which is, means that he is present in his world. Uh, he, he is with us. Even though he's bigger than the universe, he still takes an active part in it. Um, this is what we read throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's, it's the miracles that he performs. It's why we think prayer works. Prayer works because God listens and acts. He doesn't have to, but he loves us. And so when we pray, he doesn't change it. We don't, he's not a genie where we get wishes. He doesn't make everything the way we want it. 
But I absolutely believe that prayer works because God loves us and he loves to listen to us. Um, so, and, and, and that's why I say not only is he, you know, if we break these words down, if transcendent is too fancy, we can use the word holy. If imminent is too fancy, we can just use the word loving. Um, he loves us. He didn't just make us, but he loves us. First John chapter 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God, and whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God made us, and even though we left him and we misbehave and sin and disobey him, he wants us back. He still loves us. Um, So, if God is not transcendent, he is trivial. If God is not imminent, he is irrelevant, meaning he doesn't matter. If he doesn't love me, why do I care? Why would I care about him if he wasn't a loving God? It's because God is so big that we can pray to him. It's because he's so loving that he answers our prayers. It's because he is holy that sin is a problem. It is because he is loving that through Jesus he provides a solution to that problem. So here's the example, and we can think of these examples. Y'all took, y'all had this, I'm sure, in high school at the very least, Greek mythology. Remember Zeus and Hera and, and all those Greek gods living on Mount Olympus, which is a real mountain in, in Greece, because they thought that these gods, they picked the highest point that they could see up in the clouds, and they said that must be where the gods live. And there's a joke running around on the internet that, that you know what these memes are, these kind of visual jokes that you can look at? They said Greek mythology can be summed up by the one picture of, of Zeus not looking at his wife and looking at some, some other girl. And that is all of Greek mythology, the entirety of Greek mythology is that Zeus is cheating on his wife. And you can sum up almost all of the myths. Virtually every Greek hero is an illegitimate son of this Greek god, Zeus. Um, Zeus and the rest of the gods are jealous. They're um, frisky. Uh, they're petty. They can be tricked. And there's an awful lot of stories about pulling the wool over the, over the Greek god's eyes. Who wants to worship such miserable gods that are that pathetic? That, can be, that, that are jealous, that can be tricked, that can be, uh, that, that they're not any better than we are. They're not virtuous. Um, in fact, years ago, um, I had some, I, I knew a guy that, that uh, a college professor, a friend back in Urbana, that was a college professor, and he'd come to me, he knew Greek, but he didn't know biblical Greek, he knew classical Greek, and he came to me and said, I'd like to have this conversation about what the word virtue means in the New Testament. He said, because quite frankly, it doesn't really exist in Greek literature outside of the New Testament. He said, this really, arete is this really mysterious word that like, doesn't apply to the gods. They don't have any virtue. Um, people are called to be virtuous, but they're never given an example in ancient Greece of what virtue looks like. And, and it's a very interesting thing that this Greek word for virtue is really largely ignored by Greek culture because it was so nebulous till you get to the example of Jesus who sets us an example of what virtue is. The Greek gods are really kind of embarrassing. And so that would be 
gods that maybe they care about their people, maybe they're imminent and they're in their world. In fact, they live on Mount Olympus, but they're not transcendent. They're not above their world. They're not above the petty policies. And, and, and again, they can be tricked. The other extreme of that, so those are gods that are imminent but not transcendent. I would argue, because it's in the news all the time, uh, the, god, the god of Islam, uh, Allah, is what they call him, it, uh, not a real god. And one of the things about Allah is that apparently Allah is transcendent, but have you ever heard Muslims talk about how much their God loves them. This is not a religion of love. We see, we see certainly in the news with Palestine, you know, people, you know, you can see the videos of, of kids. If you haven't seen the videos, it's terrifying. The videos of these kids in Palestine saying, when I grow up, I want to be a suicide bomber. Um, what kind of a religion, what kind of a God wants that? Not just to kill themselves, but to kill others. Um, Islam is not a loving religion, uh, and, and, and it's very scary. How, and, and so we see what I like about Christianity. When followed correctly, there are a lot of people that don't follow it correctly. When followed correctly, I think when people follow the example of Jesus, the world becomes a better place. Muhammad was a conqueror who bent the surrounding region to his will, took multiple wives, killed people that disagreed with him. If people follow the example of Muhammad, the world does not become a better place. That, that, that's pretty straightforward to me. Um, that, is, that is the look of a faith and a religion that may be tra- a transcendent God, but not imminent, not loving. The God of Christianity alone is both transcendent and imminent, both loving and holy. And this brings us to the point of where we're going today with the sermon. Jesus came and died for us. That's the expression of imminence and transcendence, holy and loving, put together. So, the point. Jesus is God on earth. So, two weeks ago we said that the Bible is is the book that God left for us. He spoke to us, which is why I like the anacronym I said to you. Um, God spoke to us through the Word. In John chapter 1, we read through His Son, Jesus. The Bible documentary evidence for the Bible, the, the accuracy of the Bible is light years ahead of any other document from that day and age, um, more accurately translated through the, through the centuries than anything else. We've tested that again and again with every other manuscript. Um, it's the most well-attested ancient book that we have. It's the most accurately translated ancient book. Now, it's still a step of faith to believe it. it may not have been true when it was written. It has not been mistranslated through the years. That's just if, if you missed that, I've got a paper on that. Did you read that paper? Not bad. Put, my, put all my college work into it. Um, it's a very, very accurate uh, book and has been accurately translated. I promise you can, take, you can take absolute faith. What you've got in your hand is accurately translated from the ancient manuscripts. Now, the question becomes, were they, did the people that wrote it, did they just make it up or were they really divinely inspired? Well, that takes a step of faith. I don't think it's a blind leap of faith. Why do I think that? Let's go back to the fact that everybody who follows the example of Jesus makes the world a better place. I think that that's one of those proofs that we have that this book is a true book. Because when followed truly, the world gets better. Your life gets better when followed truly. Uh, So I think it's a step of faith. I don't think it's a blind leap of faith. The Bible shows us uh, what God 
wants to do in our lives, shows us that there is a sin problem and shows us the solution, um, uh, how God has dealt with sin. So let's, you know, that, that gets back to that, 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 that story of the Bible, that, that, that opening, that rising action, that, that climax, that, that falling action and, and the resolution, the conclusion. Um, this is the story of the Bible. What, what has God done to fix my problem? And the answer is Jesus. Jesus' death on the cross fixes my sin problem. Now, unless I see that sin is a problem, I think Jesus is pointless. I, I reiterate, there is no point telling people, except Jesus is your Savior, if they don't know what they need saving from. At that point, it just becomes a social club. We do have to recognize that sin is a problem, that God hates it. It's not a pet peeve. The Bible talks about the wrath of God. Um, he hates it that much. And sin, sin is that big of a problem, and, and, and the cross is where God is appeased. Um, Jesus took our punishment, but we still have to follow him to be saved. And unless we see sin as a problem, then Jesus kind of is pointless. And likewise, if we cling to our sins, then what's the point of calling ourselves Christian? Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Do Christians need to live Christ-like? Yes. Because if we don't, if we're not following Jesus, then I'm not sure that we're really Christians at that point. Um, if, if we cling to our sins, Jesus is pointing that. You've, you have met people that get stuck on the book of Revelation. They're, they totally camp and, and they're just fascinated. It's this, it's this overwhelming, a lot of TV preachers, overwhelming fascination trying to determine who the four horsemen are, what the dragon is, is the Antichrist active right now, and what does the mark of the beast in 666 look like and all that. You, you, you know people like, or people that get stuck in primeval Genesis. And by primeval Genesis, I mean all the stuff before Abraham that's kind of tricky to date. The Tower of Babel, the Flood, um, where do the dinosaurs fit in? Um, there, are all these, there are people that really camp on that. And my caution on, on any of that, if you're going to get stuck in a book, please get stuck in one of the Gospels. Jesus is the point, not Genesis, not Revelation. I'm not saying they're not Scripture. I'm just saying that they point, all of that points to Jesus. Uh, anybody that reads Revelation weekly but doesn't read the Gospels, I'm going to question whether or not they're focused on the right thing. Now, in my previous church, our neighbor, who also went to our church, her name was Debbie, she read the book of John, fell in love with it, and said, to me one day, she said, I know I should read other parts of the Bible, but I just keep reading. I get to the end of John and I just start it again. I'm okay with that. <laughs> if, if, if you've got a favorite book, make it one of the Gospels. Um, and, and, and as Jesus is the point, I don't find that someone rereading the Gospels again and again is a problem if, if they don't get past that, because, because that's who we're following. I do want us to read the rest of the Bible, but all books are not, all books are not equal. Okay. There's no question that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are more important than Haggai and Zephaniah. Now, I love those books. I really like those. I think Haggai and Zephaniah both have phenomenal message. But those two books point to Jesus. It all points to Jesus, and we want to and we, and we camp on that. Um, 
if we're not focused on Jesus, our faith gets off center and out of control. When Jesus isn't central, there's a problem. He may not be Lord. Um, through the years, there's been a book called The Kingdom of the Cults. Walter Martin wrote the original one. Um, Rabbi Zacharias worked on it for a bit. Hank Hanegraaff worked on it for a bit. Various Christian writers have updated the book. The Kingdom of the Cults just looks at the different groups that are out there that are, that are either not Christianity, like Islam, um, or they're groups, of Christ, they're groups that started off Christian and went off into weird places like the Jehovah's Witnesses that's not Christian anymore. And the one thing in reading through that whole book, I'll summarize it for you. If Jesus isn't center, if you don't get Jesus right, everything else spins out of control. All of those groups, Jehovah's Witnesses, he's not God on earth. The Mormons, he was an angel, but he wasn't God on earth. Islam, he wasn't God on earth. All of these groups in kingdom of the cult, they get the identity of Jesus wrong, and then everything else spins out of control. We've got to keep Jesus central, and specifically, that he was God. Um, so here is who Jesus is. He is the expression of God's love. He is the answer to the problem of sin. Because God is holy, he cannot tolerate sin. And that includes my sin, and that's a big problem for me. But because he is love, he sent Jesus Christ to die for my sin, to redeem me to him. God is holy, so there is a sin. There are things that do not belong in his presence. And because I'm made in his image, and we talked about this before, because I am made in his image, I can choose sin. That's, that's why there is sin, because I can choose not to be godly. Um, but praise God, he is also loving, and it's in his nature. And we read that in 1 John chapter 4, that he is loving, and so he sends us Jesus. Romans chapter 6, verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God loves us, and so he sent Jesus to redeem us through his death. Um, now, so, uh, what I want to add to this is we talk about the identity of Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus is God. I, contradictory phrase, well, well, welcome to Trinitarianism. I don't throw the word Trinity out a whole lot because I want to call Bible things by Bible names. And while I definitely believe in the concept of the Trinity, it's not a word that appears in the Bible, and the guy that made up the word was a, ter- was a heretic and he, he didn't have good faith. But the, but the concept is very biblical, that there is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Those are not three gods. We believe in one God who, can, who manifests, who chooses to reveal himself in three different ways to us. Um, Jesus was... Now, and, and you can do the whole thing of, of uh, three-leaf clover. I've seen people use that analogy. I've seen people use the analogy of... Water can be liquid, or it can be ice, or it can be steam, and all analogies break down. I think for me, the easiest one is I am a father, I am a husband, I am a son, but I'm not three people, I'm one person. Uh, And I think that as, as much as anything, that analogy works for me. God chooses to reveal himself to us as Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Jesus is called the Son of God, and he is. Um, but at the same point, there wasn't like a day that he was born. I, he was born on earth, but there wasn't a day that he was 
born in heaven and there wasn't a time that he wasn't. Jesus is God, so he has always existed. And I know that that's confusing. Um, there are some scriptures, if you, have, if you got the bulletin, there are some scriptures I put at the top of the bulletin um, that talk about Jesus' identity as God. John chapter 1, Romans chapter 9, John chapter 20, 2 Peter chapter 1. Places where Jesus is called God. Um, now, if it makes your head hurt, let me say this. If, if that Jesus is Son of God and Jesus is God, if that makes your head hurt, that's okay. You don't have to get it. It's a mystery of the Bible. I don't entirely get the mysteries. I don't have to. We are finite human beings, and I have trouble understanding the infinite, and God gets that. The bigger deal is not whether I get it. The bigger deal is whether I trust God even if I don't get it. And I do trust God because this book has proven itself to me. So if this book tells me that's the case, it's true, and I don't have to understand it. It's just true. It's a mystery, but it's a true mystery. Um, The Bible tells me that Jesus is the Son of God and God himself, and that's okay. I can trust the book. Um, That's as big as it gets because the implication then is that God himself died on the cross for my sins. Somebody's going to say, well, he's God. Death didn't hold him. He is God, but he was fully human as well. That's part of this mystery. Jesus wasn't 50-50, like half God, half human. He was completely God, but he was also completely human. It hurt him as much as it would hurt you and me. He wasn't looking forward to it any more than you or I would be looking forward to it. Um, he, He was holy, but he was loving. He was transcendent, but he was imminent. Because he's holy, he couldn't live with my sin. Because he's li- because he's loving, he died for it. Our hymn of decision is hymn number. Is it, are we up to two eighty three? Two thirty nine. We are up to two eighty three. It was two eighty three. Um, seeing how much God loves you, will you make Him Lord of your life? If you haven't, He is the Lord of everything, creation. But because of giving you the freedom to choose, you get to choose whether or not he's going to be the Lord of your life. Uh, And therefore, you get to choose if you want to spend eternity with him and be saved from your sins or not. We're not saved to heaven. We are saved to the God who loves us uh, and who wants to redeem us. If you haven't made that decision to follow Christ as Savior, I'd like to talk with you after Thank you for listening. You can contact us at our website, firstchurchofchristelkins.com, where you can also find out more. Have a nice week.